may turn, if you would, with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And I am wearing my very, very special socks today, just so that you know. Oh, you can't see them. They, uh, it says it somewhere on there. <laughs> they are my eagle socks. I just came back from Philly. Uh, I was away last week. Uh, Zach, I have heard so many good things. And uh, I appreciate you, brother. You are not just my son-in-law, but you are a very, very dear friend. You love God. We are linked arm in arm. And I so appreciate how you communicated the heart of Jesus in this concept of forgiveness. And just rich truths, church. We are going through a season, if you haven't caught on, in which I truly believe that God is wanting to bring healing to so many hearts. And, and it's, it's really easy for us, honestly, to, to kind of get it theologically. And then we're trying to line it up with the reality in our life. And sometimes the gears grind and we just don't get it. I truly believe that this year God is wanting us to get that. And it actually has everything to do with the sermon today. But again, Zach, thank you for um, kicking off the new year. Uh, as I was in Philly... Uh, there we, we obviously had the memorial service for my brother-in-law, Chuck. He was 75. He passed away uh, actually very suddenly while they were, um, while they were, what is the word I am? Dialysis. Thank you, Mary. Uh, while they were trying to give him dialysis. So it really came as a shock to my sister. She is doing very well, by the way. Uh, thank you for those of you who have asked and, uh, just people have been really filling her life and helping her as she sets her heart on Christ. It is hard, though. Uh, even when, even though she knows she is not saying goodbye, she is saying, see you later, uh, that is still very hard. All of us have had to say, see you later. And I remember Kate going off to Mexico for five months, and Meredith is in tears, and I'm trying to hold them back. And, you know, it's only five months, yeah, but what if, you know, and, and you know, it's five whole months. And it's hard emotionally. So do continue to pray for my sister, Ginny, um, during this time. How many of you remember very distinctly when you were a kid, you fell down and scratched your knee, okay? And you said, the only answer to this dilemma is a Band-Aid, Mommy, right? Do you remember those days? It, okay, the hands went down. What? Come on, band-aids. Okay. Now today, you know, today we get these, we get these Elmo or Sesame Street band-aids or Marvel comic book band-aids, or this one's a smiley face band-aid. And how many of you remember when or when your kid scratched their knee? This was the only answer. It was a band-aid. Because the band-aid would take the pain away, yes, it would, and miraculously heal it. And mommy, in the goodness of your heart, you would look at the knee and you would say, but sweetheart, it's only a tiny scratch and it's not even bleeding. And they look up at you with this insistence. What are you talking about? This Band-Aid, is, it's going to heal me and it's going to take away the pain, mommy. And so you, in all the kindness of your heart, get out that Elmo or the smiley face Band-Aid and you put this Band-Aid on 
And where am I? I'm going to just put it right there. I hope that doesn't create a distraction because I'm going to wear this thing during the entire sermon. <laughs> and you'll see my point here in just a second. And so how many of you, however, when you have heard someone give just this very deep problem and someone responds with a very simplistic, even completely inadequate answer, the expression is, come on, I don't want to put a Band-Aid on the problem. Now, in America, we have something very unique that has been developing over the last several decades, and I would venture to say even 200 years, in the, the early church did not wrestle with. When, an, when a pastor encountered a problem that was very deep, he didn't say, I'm going to meet with you three times, and then after that, I'm going to recommend you to Mr. Psychologist down the road here. They couldn't do that. So my question is, what would they do? And I want to tell you this, that those pastors did not put a Band-Aid on the problem. They gave the truth of God's word. The problem that we encounter today is when we send our friend down the street to Mr. Psychiatrist, who, by the way, this is a very new profession. They then begin to say, oh, you know, what? You, you've gone through a divorce. Here's the answer to your heartache. You just need to find another person to fill that void in your life. And they proceed to put a Band-Aid on the problem. Now, for many of you, what I, the, the answer that I just gave, you're kind of scratching your head thinking, well, yeah, that, that is the answer. You just went through a divorce. You feel hurt. Finding someone to fall in love with, that is what's going to heal your heart. And I just want to tell you that that is a Band-Aid. Now, can I just say that I'm not opposed to Band-Aids? But... When a client comes into the doctor's office with a gaping wound and they're bleeding out, the answer is not a Band-Aid. The answer is let's deal with the infection and then let's suture it up. Then if you want to put a Band-Aid on it, that's okay. But that's a Band-Aid is a Band-Aid. Psychologists in our day-to-day -day offer Band-Aids by the hundreds. And most of them, the vast majority, even Christian psychologists today, fail to lead us to discover this truth that the early church had to experience and discover and find out for themselves that Jesus is truly the answer to everything. Now, maybe some of you are sitting here right now and you're thinking, oh, great, Pastor Mike. You just gave a really cliche-ish overly simplified answer to a very deep problem. And may I suggest to you, I truly believe that herein lies our problem. Because how, how, when was the last time you went to a Christian bookstore? Do they not have a top 10 best-selling bookshelf? Sure they do. The top 10 best-selling books, nearly all of which, nearly, are self-help books. I've got the answer for your problem. And rarely will you find that they lead you to Jesus. Now, I realize that when someone is going through a deep problem and you just simply say, come on, 
you went through a divorce, your life is falling apart. Jesus is the answer, hello. Yeah, don't say it that way. You just gave the most powerful truth without explaining. And, and I think we need, and we, we actually deserve an explanation. Because I am telling you, Jesus truly is the answer to everything. How many of you know who Stephen Hawking is or, or was? Okay. Uh, atheist physicist who came out with what he called the theory of everything, which, in my opinion, turned out to be the theory of nothing. Being an atheist, he gave it his best shot, and he missed it big time. Can I tell you this? Today, I want to give you the answer to everything. But I don't want to simplify it, but I also realize that we are only going to get our feet wet this morning. But when you go through the hardest, darkest time in your life, you need to come to this truth that Jesus truly is the answer for what you're going through. To the point where you've heard it shared by many people here, Jesus needs to be our complete satisfaction. How is that? How, how is Jesus the answer to everything, to every problem? We need to discover this, I believe. We need to discover that Jesus as the answer is truly not a band-aid. He truly is the answer. So you're there with me in Hebrews chapter 2. <coughs> now, before I left for Delaware, um, okay, 30 minutes south of Philadelphia, I had to throw that in. I, I preached on cha Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to reread those, but I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. And what I'm hoping that we will discover is that the truth of Jesus being our high priest, doesn't that just sound so religious? I, I want to unwrap that too. It doesn't sound religious at all. We, we really get this. But that Jesus is our high priest is, is going to begin to open the door to discovering the answer of how is it that Jesus is the answer to every life problem, everything in our lives. Are you there with me? Hebrews 2.14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helped, but Abraham's descendants. And may I pause there. When he says Abraham's descendants, he is writing to the Hebrews. Please understand that he is not just talking about the Jews. Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes it very clear. We are Abraham's descendants, as it says here, if we believe in Jesus, Jew or Gentile. So we're talking about all of us here. Abraham, you and I, we are Abraham's descendants through Christ. And that is what he's referring to here. But Abraham's descendants. For this reason, I want you to underline that phrase in your Bible. Highlight it, put a box around it, whatever you do, circle it. But for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Underline that. In every way. In every way, we're going to get into that, obviously, this morning. In order that, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God 
and that he might make atonement for the Greek word there is you, some versions don't translate it this way, but it's generally translated propitiation. Now, we've talked about that word a little bit in the, well, quite a bit actually in the past. But, so he is a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And number two, that he might make atonement or propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. I want to just step back a little bit. Before the creation of this world, before the, therefore the creation of time, and there is simply the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in what I'm going to call a holy council. And in this holy council, now forgive me, I have no clue what it's like to live outside of time. I have no clue what it's like to be God. I am not God, never will be God. I leave that up to him. That is way above my pay grade. But I do need to understand some of these truths that I'm going to talk to you about right now. But in that divine, that holy council, they planned insofar as they decreed. They planned to have a creation that would be able to experience God's love and be free to love him back in love or let me word it this way they planned this out of the love in their heart because for us to be able to share in the experience of God's love and to love him back is the greatest joy that we could ever experience now, I'm going to say that again because maybe that's a disconnect for you right now. To experience God's love and to love him back is the greatest thing that you can ever experience. There is a problem, though, and that is for us to be able to love God requires a choice. And if there is a choice to love God, inherent in that choice is also the ability to choose to not love God. Herein lies the dilemma of evil or suffering in a world. And I've mentioned it to you a couple of weeks ago. How can an all-loving, all-powerful God permit suffering in this world? And the answer has to be because there is no other way for us to enjoy his love and love him in response. Because he loved me, I love him. First John 4. And so God in this divine council is talking about this opportunity in creating man in his image to be loved, to experience his love, and to love him back by his own choosing and therefore truly grasp and, and experience this amazing love that God has for us and we, we can have for him. There is a problem, though, that they immediately encountered. I'm, I'm making this very human, forgive me. I'm not sure how it took place in the divine council. But as they discussed this, they said, however, in this freedom, there will be sin. And this sin will wreak havoc on our creation. And there will be rebellion even in our own camp. And the devil himself will rise up and he will seek to, to usurp the place and the authority of God. And he will be cast out. And the re, the, the, what he will then do is seek to destroy and alienate 
God's creation. Divide and conquer. His goal will be to decimate the very good creation of God so that by the introduction of sin into this creation, this world, this universe actually, that's how far the curse goes, as sin enters, it will break this creation. Man, made in God's image, will become broken. The concept of divide and conquer. Man is now divided or separated from God, and he is prey to the conquering of the evil one. I was conquered until I was age 14, and God brought me to this place of realizing how desperately I needed him. And then no matter how hard I would try, I could not fix my problems, and I most certainly could not fix me. I needed Jesus to do that. The answer is given in the passage that I've read to you. And in this divine counsel, God said we're going to need to provide a remedy for this alienation of our creation. How are we going to do this? Now, I, I could go on for hours and hours as far as what God purposed in his heart and what he is accomplishing in this gener in this day and what he's going to fully accomplish in heaven. Time does not permit me to do that. So in a nutshell, let me just say this. Jesus said, hey, hang on. I think I've got an answer. And that answer will be in me. That answer for alienation from us will be me. That answer for the brokenness of your, our creation will be me. And I will go down there and I will suffer for them and I will bear the penalty of man's sins upon myself. And the father looked into the eyes of his beloved son and he said, but you need to realize that this propitiation is completely powerless unless you become like them. The payment will be of no effect unless you take on human flesh, unless you enter their humanity, unless you enter into the brokenness and the suffering of their world. And Jesus said, I'll do that because I love them so much. I want them. They're everything in me to be with me forever and enjoy them and for them to enjoy me. And with that plan, God the Father, through Jesus, created all things. And the devil rebelled, and he led men astray, and God's very good creation was broken. Man sinned and was alienated from God, and Jesus came. And I'm going to suggest to you that in this plan, the problem is sin. The problem is the brokenness of our world, and I don't care what problem that you're facing. Jesus, therefore, in coming to this earth, has provided the answer to your brokenness, and it's in him. Now, verse 14 tells us that Jesus stepped, he shared in our humanity in order, what does it say there? To destroy him 
who holds the power of death. Now, I preached on that two weeks ago. I'm not going to do it again. But Jesus came to destroy the devil. 1 John 3.8 says that he came to destroy the devil's works. The devil's work is, is to divide and conquer, is to alienate you, is to destroy God's very good creation. It's for you to get wallow, to, to wallow in misery and depression and alienation from God and in, in our sin and be consumed by that sin and that selfishness and focus on me, me, me and my needs and to push God away. That was his goal, to destroy the devil who has sought to destroy God's creation. Verse 17. This understand then in the divine holy counsel of God, this plan of Jesus coming to earth had to include Jesus becoming like me. Jesus becoming just like you. Look at verse 17. For this reason, he had to. There was no other alternative. In the very nature, I would dare to say, in, in the very nature of God himself, for sins to be paid for, for Jesus in a relationship with God to truly be the only answer for everything, he had to become like you and me. He had to share in our humanity. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. In every way. Then he goes on and he says that the result of or, or the the result of this, by taking on our humanity, he would accomplish two things. I'm I've already preached on one, and I'm going to take the remainder of our time to preach on the other. The two things then would be number one, so that he would become a merciful and a faithful high priest. And number two, faithful high and high priest. And number two, that he would become a propitiation for our sins. Now, I realize that for most Christians, at least most Christians in America, Jesus is the answer to my sin problem. That when I believe in Jesus, I'm saved. I'm made new. I'm born again, Jesus said. Paul says, I'm a new creation, as Meredith quoted. And the result is that I become a new person. Uh, uh, my sins are washed away, as Zach was bringing up. I stand now in the righteousness of Christ and not in my own by keeping the law, but in his righteousness. I am now empowered by his spirit to walk out the commands of God because as Ezekiel 36 prophesied, the spirit of God would be placed in us to move us to obey him. And so now we are empowered to live a holy life and empowered to minister to one another. We see uh, this throughout the book of Acts. And so, <coughs> so this is our problem that we tend to think Jesus is only the answer for my salvation, for my brokenness. But now that I'm saved, I just need to look to the law or I just need to do the best I can to obey, or I need to fix my problems, or I need to go to Barnes & Noble and find out that perfect self-help book that's going to suit my needs, or I need to go down to the psychiatrist 
down the road and, and I'm going to get the answers from him because after all, he studied man's brokenness and he knows the answer, right? Not. And I'm going to encourage you, let's come back to Jesus. And I am not oversimplifying the answer here. He is a merciful and faithful high priest, and he has made atonement for us. He is our propitiation. Actually, if you were to look at Jesus being a merciful and faithful high priest in the book of Acts, and this is just for you guys who love to really dig into the, 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 the word here, that concept of Jesus being the merciful and faithful high priest covers Hebrews chapter 3 through 7. The fact that he made atonement for us he is our propitiation, covers chapters 8 through 10. And then our necessary response of faith, which God seeks to refine, and by that faith allows us to enter into his inheritance, deals with the rest of the book, chapters 11 through 13. So I'm going to suggest to you that what the author is providing us here is crucial, not just in understanding the book, but to understanding our daily problems. And how to, to cope with them. How to walk in victory. How to see Jesus as the answer truly for everything. Now since I've already touched on Jesus being our propitiation. And that it is only through him as our covering. And I actually preached, if you remember, a Christmas sermon based on Leviticus. And the mercy seat. Or what's literally translated the covering. And it was there that the glory of God was manifest. And it says in John 1.14, he became flesh and was tabernacled amongst us. He is the complete fulfillment of the temple, the tabernacle, and he truly reveals the glory of God, though in veiled fashion. And we discovered that as we entered into the Holy of Holies and saw that he truly, in this way, was the veiled glory of God. He was our covering. I'm not going to preach that sermon again. So I want to focus on that first part. He has become for us a merciful and a faithful high priest. I want to unwrap this. Now, here's, here's what I realized that we're going to discover. That many of us, especially the longer that we have been Christians, we learn, we grow in our knowledge of the word, and we begin to formulate um, even a very correct theology. We can struggle, though, when it comes to real life, and we can go through problems, and we tend to look at the Bible as, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's truth, yes, but here's my problem, and there is this disconnect. I want to try and begin to remove that for us, this disconnect between proper theology and our reality, because I'm going to suggest to you that theology, if it is just head knowledge, if you can raise your hand and answer every theological question, and that's as far as it goes, you have a major problem. I grew up in a church. I knew about the gospel, and I was still dead in my sins, because it failed to be applied to my life. I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. You might know about the Bible. I'm wanting you to know the truth. Because when you truly know the truth, that means you experience it and you walk in freedom. And so let, let's dig into this. Let's, how is it that Jesus being our high priest is so important? 
I mean, he takes up, he mentions it here, and then he takes up chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. 3 through 7, talking about Jesus being our high. Why is this so important? Can I ask you this? What bonds you together with someone in friendship? Now, I want you just right now, in your mind, to think of a friend. What bonds you to that friend? What maybe, how did it start out? Are you thinking right now? Choose a friend. How did, how did that relationship begin? Where is it at right now? Why is it a good friendship? Here's what you're going to discover. There's actually several elements of a good relationship. Some of you are already figuring out where I'm going with this. But how is it that you develop this friendship? What does it consist of? Here's what you're going to find. Initially, you develop that friendship with someone because you had something in common with them. You had common experiences. Maybe in a Bible study, someone was sharing about a deep hurt that they had, and you walked up to them afterwards and you said, wow, you know what? I went through something very similar to that, and you share your story, and before you know it, you're talking about it. You're beginning to bond with them. And then you say, hey, you know what? Let me Just get me your number, and uh, let, let's, let's hang out. Come on over to my house. We'll do blah, 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 blah. And you know, I've got a great movie uh, that, that I really enjoyed. Um, it's called Facing the Giants or Courageous, you know, something like this. Uh, th those are some of my favorite movies. And, uh, and so you, you, you go through that, and, and you find something in this movie, and you start talking about it, and you're bonding more. And you're bonding over common experiences, but you're also going to bond over common interests. Maybe you find a gentleman um, who is in marketing. Um, Diego is gonna, he, he majored in marketing. He now has a job marketing. And my other son-in-law happens he may, he majored in marketing as well. And so, you know, I, I just asked, yeah, I'm not, I think it's okay to share this. But I, Diego said, you know, what, I think my dream job dream job is to work over there at marketing in AAA. Where's that going? Don't let that kid out, by the way. Um, and and I said, really? And and why is that? He said, no, I've just walked in there and I've talked with Zach and you know we talked about marketing and all. I mean that'd be great. And so they bonded over marketing. And I, I I know I was heavily involved in sports, and that's one of the things I tend to bond with guys when we start talking about sports. I mean they're a kindred soul when they start talking about the Eagles favorably. Okay, that's just the way I am. And so. We, we, we can bond over these things, things that we have in common, life experiences, even tragedies. And, and even tragedies tend to bond us even more than our successes. Actually, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when two people experience success, they can many times find themselves in competition with one another. Oh, you're the CEO at so-and-so? That's great. How did that happen? Great. Here, let me tell you my story as far as how I was promoted to CEO. And there's this little competition, and you can watch this develop, and you're thinking, what are they doing? And there's two guys going at it, and, and they're, they're trying to, you know, I'm better than you. I, you've experienced your success. Well, mine is greater. And it's like, really? Uh, now, I grew up in a family in which we did this. None of us are CEOs, but we, we, would tend, we were in constant competition because of our brokenness. You know, how sad. And, and we've each had to deal with our insecurities, but it's, bro it's, it's when, we, when we share our life experiences and our brokenness and our hurts and we discover that Jesus is this answer, it tends to bond us. And we especially then bond with people that express love, and compassion, mercy, kindness. 
They're not in this relationship just to take. They are truly in this relationship to give. And it's for this reason that I married my wife. We discovered some common interests. We actually played tennis together. I don't know if you knew that or not. But we played tennis together. We did some other things. Uh, and and we, we had common interests. But the thing that made me fall in love with my wife the most was because she loved Jesus so much. I never, honestly, I'd never met a girl who loved Jesus as much as she did. I wanted to be a pastor. I knew that. And I just didn't see, well, you know, she's a perfect candidate to be a pastor's wife. That's not where I went with that, though I did think about it. Uh, I looked at her and I just thought, oh, my goodness, I want to spend the rest of my life with her. I want to get to know her. I want to find out why she loves Jesus, because I love Jesus. And she had been through, and she shares her testimony about an accident that she had been through, her best friend passing away, the brokenness that she experienced, bringing her to that place of decision. And, and it drew me in, and I listened. I probably listened the entire way home there, but as I was taking her to her, her grandmother's house. But I fell in love with her. And these are the things that bond us. Our experiences, we might bond over hard divorce that truly hurts. Women, we tend to bond over childbirth many times, right? Am I not, is that not true? Childbirthing or the pains of childbirthing or the pains of trying to raise a child. Ah, the difficulties, the differences and the loss of a loved one. The feelings of rejection and what has God done help you with that common interests like sports or careers or hobbies politics ministry almost anything we have shared experiences we have shared interests that bond us so then how does jesus fit into this equation you see jesus can be a merciful faithful high priest because he chose as God. It, it baffles me to this day. I've still been trying to figure out why he would do this. But he steps down out of all of his infinite glory. And the praise of angels to step into the rejection of this fallen broken world. For you and me. He, he gains no benefit from this. He did it simply for you. God was in no need to do this. But we were desperately in need as a people made it in his image, completely broken by the works of the devil. He did this completely for me, for you. And he stepped into yours and my pain. And I'm going to give you an example right now. I, I need to flesh this out a little bit. I'm going to give two examples, actually. But with this first one, I'm going to need a little bit of a running start, okay? Um. There is a tendency on our part, I think, honestly, to dehumanize Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting many times people want to try and make Jesus so human he ends up being a sinful human, and that is not the case. Please don't go there when I share this example for you. But Jesus was fully human. That means he experienced my feelings. He experienced my sorrows. He experienced my temptation. 
He suffered, verse 18, he suffered in the very midst of those temptations. That means he was pulled apart. He was, he was distraught over these temptations. It's not as if he's God and think, eh, this is a piece of cake. Devil, get behind me in Jesus' name. Well, of course, he's Jesus, so he wouldn't have to say that. But get behind me, Satan. And he actually had to say this to Peter. And, and it just was not simple like this. Well, I'm God. I, I, I'm not going to be tainted by sin. This is nothing to me. No, 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 no. You, then you don't understand the humanity. Humi, humi, I'll say it. The humanity. There we go. Of Jesus. He suffered in his temptations. Though he did not cross that line and sin. Let me give you an example. I think it's a very well-established uh, conjecture. I might even say fact, but we don't know for sure from the scriptures. But Jesus' father was a carpenter. Some translate that word mason. I understand that. But um, for the sake of argument, I'm just, Jesus, was a, Jesus' father, Joseph, was a carpenter. As Jesus approached the age of 12, moving into 13, he made a decision, or his parents made it for him. He was either going to pursue being a rabbi, in which case he would then leave his schooling and become schooled in the scriptures only by a rabbi, by someone who would mentor him. This happened, for example, with the Apostle Paul. He was mentored from the age of 13 on by a gentleman by the name of Gamaliel. You come across Gamaliel's name, actually, in Acts, 14, in Acts chapter 5. Now, Jesus did not choose that route. He instead chose to be mentored by his father, though he remained a personal student of the scriptures. Please understand, D Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem with the scriptures memorized. Jesus didn't know his Aleph Bet Gimels uh, when he was born. He had to learn them. In taking on humanity, he had to learn, just like you and me. He had to learn obedience the same way, not through trial and error, but he had to experience it to actually obey. Now, Jesus learned the scriptures. He didn't wake up one morning, even at age five or 12, and suddenly he had the word memorized, though Jesus is the word. He still had to learn it in his humanness. Jesus studied the scriptures, but he learned, he studied carpentry. Now, follow me here. I don't want to lose you. Let me pull you in. Jesus' father, Joseph, was a carpenter. From the age of 12, he would then have left his schooling. He could do some on his own, but he now came into his father's shop. He learned carpentry. His father said to him, Jesus, now being the oldest, there were no others in that carpenter's shop for Joseph to mentor, to tutor, to disciple, if you will, just his son, Jesus. And at age 12, maybe 13, Jesus comes into his shop and he spends the entire day with his father. You're wondering, where are you going with this, Mike? And so every problem that in carpentry that Jesus encountered, Joseph would probably ask him, so Jesus, what are you going to do here? What is the solution to this problem? And Jesus would say, what about this? No, no. Remember, you learned this. That's what's going to happen. You don't want to do this. What about this? Try this. And as he does it, the problem is corrected. The wood is bent properly, etc. Wow, that, that is amazing. That's an awesome trick. I'm going to try that next time. You do that, friends. 
And his, his father showed him all kinds of carpentry, which would be building anything with wood, with wood, ships, houses, furniture, anything with wood. And consequently, Jesus and his father Joseph, I'm going to suggest to you, were best friends. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us this. But can we not escape? Can we somehow escape the fact that Jesus spent so much time in the carpenter's shop with his father, learning life, learning a skill? We now, let me introduce to you a problem. If we go through the Gospels, there is only a mention of Joseph as if he's not around. When a problem arises, who is it that comes to Jesus and, and, and wants to ask him, Jesus, are you out of your mind? And it says, Mary took his brothers and sisters and went to Jesus. Where is Joseph? When Jesus was facing this career change, where was Joseph? When Jesus was facing rejection, when Jesus was trying to come into his call, which no one but he truly grasped, where was his father to help him through all of those struggles and temptations? Where was he? At the cross. Where was Joseph? And the only conclusion that any scholar in their right mind has offered is that Joseph apparently had died. Jesus' best friend had died. What do we make of that? Was this just something that Jesus says, okay, well, that was in the plan of what my father got, my heavenly father got. I'm just going to move on. Could I suggest to you that Jesus bore the pain of that loss of love? And I think it's not with, without reason that Jesus, that rather Joseph was his closest friend. And he played with his brothers and sisters. Yes, I understand that. But he looked up to his dad. His dad was a godly man. And being a godly man exuded the character of God. You read through Matthew 2. By four, Matthew 1 and 2, he was led to make a right decision with four dreams. And God the Father entrusted the mentoring of his son Jesus to this man. Who scripture says was a righteous man. Let me take this one more step. Jesus says he's going through ministry. Would you not think that at any point in his ministry where he is struggling, that he would wonder, I wonder what my father Joseph would do here. Have you ever lost a loved one? I mean, someone you truly and love you and poured into your life. And when you face a dilemma, you wonder, what would my dad think? What would he do? Now let me take you to John 11. It was the first scripture passage that I ever memorized. And in John 11, Jesus steps before Lazarus' tomb. He just declared, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus knew that he, he, was, he, he purposely did not go there too early to allow Lazarus to die. And he was going to raise him from the dead. 
Jesus knows that he, is, he steps before the tomb and is about to say, Lazarus, come forth for the very glory of God the Father. And yet that does not stop him from entering into the pain of Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters, that loved Joseph, said, Jesus, if you had just been here, he would not have died. I believe that you could have healed him. I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. Yes, yes, I know this, but Martha, I'm paraphrasing. Mary, same thing. If you had just been here, he is now led before the tomb and the people are weeping before the tomb. And Jesus, he's, it says that he is overcome. It says this twice. Is it that Jesus is just a sympathetic crier? Is he looking around and everyone's crying? And, oh, let me. I can be a sympathetic crier. But I tell you what, when I have entered into that person's pain and they start weeping, it tears me up. Can you not imagine that as he stood before that tomb of a man that he was about to raise from the dead, that he was face to face with the truth that the man who was closest in his life, he could not raise from the dead. That was not the will of his father. It was not his time, many reasons, but he stands there before the tomb of Lazarus, no doubt, with the sense of a loss of life. This is Jesus, very human, entering into my pain, into my loss, to minister to me. And Jesus twice he understands the pain of people who are experiencing death and the loss of life jesus experienced that deep loss with his father He understood deep loss of love. And my Bible tells me that made him a loving, compassionate, and yes, even merciful God who has stepped down into my suffering because he himself suffered when he was tempted and he himself experienced great loss. This God who sits on the throne right now and rules over all creation, does not look down into your pain and say, suck it up and just rub some dirt in it. His heart breaks. His heart is torn. His heart loves. This concept of mercy does not just simply mean you deserve some really, really bad punishment, but you know what? It's, I'm just so good, I'm not going to give it to you. Mercy can be understood as not getting what we deserve. But this concept of mercy in the Greek, it means compassion, pity, sympathy. I have been there, 
your heart's so good, sweetie. But understand that Jesus would then say, I have such an amazing plan that you cannot see. As a matter of fact, you may not see any of it. And you are at this point where perhaps, and I'm speculating, perhaps Jesus experienced when he stood at his father's tomb, knowing by age 12, knowing, and Jesus and Joseph died after that age, knowing that he had this call of the father on his life, and he was discovering if he hadn't completely discovered this full purpose that he would go to a cross. Somewhere in his life, the father unveiled this, but when he was at his father's tomb, the father did not say to him, raise him from the dead. Because he did say that apparently at Lazarus's tomb. Because Jesus only did what the father showed him to do. That was the intimacy of the relationship. Jesus experienced that love. And in experiencing that loss and that heartache, he has now become this amazing, compassionate, kind, loving, prince of peace to you and me. And he says, you have entered into this suffering. And when you experience loss like this, of a love, dearly loved one, there is temptation. God, why? Very fair question. But understand that many people, when they begin to ask that question, they don't stop and they begin to enter into a phase of accusing God. And from there, they begin to hate God. I'm not saying that this is the necessary course. It's not. Many people travel. And Jesus would speak to your heart. If you have lost a loved one, and he is saying, don't go there. I have asked that question of the Father. Why have you allowed this in my life? Now, and I'm posing it that way because we have this view that Jesus just always knew everything because he was God. But the Father revealed things to his son in time. The Father said, Lazarus is to be healed. Don't go there in his sickness but you will raise him from the dead. The father communicated this to the son. And so Jesus now, he has this amazing plan and it is shrouded in suffering and pain and even temptation in your life. And Jesus says to you, can you trust me? Can you walk with me? I have been in your pain. Can you walk with me? Can I guide you? Can I lead you? Because I am the answer. In my relationship with you, I am the answer right now for what you are crying out for in your life. This is not some band-aid that, that Jesus wants to put on your life. He has been there. He has experienced deep loss. He has experienced deep rejection, deep betrayal. Did this not hurt his heart? Was Jesus not tempted? Because my Bible says he was. And yet he remained faithful. And he followed the will of his father no matter what. 
Jesus has not become a band-aid. He is truly the deepest answer to every struggle that you can go through. I'm going to be very quick with you. Another one more example. How is, your, how is Jesus the answer to my anger problem? I, I just can't seem to control my temper. Every time something happens, I fly off the handle. I hurt people. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus is the answer. I'm going to get there in a moment. But sometimes we get angry because we don't get what we, what we want. We get frustrated. That frustration turns to anger. The problem's not getting resolved. You know, Jesus went through this. Jesus wanted his disciples to just get it sometimes. And he did one of these, oish. Thank you, Father. Oh, you have little faith. Do you still not get it? He's on the boat. They didn't bring any bread. And they're saying, and he says, so where's the bread? And they're, they're oh. He's really ticked at us. You didn't bring bread. And Jesus is thinking, guys, really? We, we've got a little, we've got a few slices of bread in here. Will, will, can I not make that enough for you, really? I, I, I am your all-sufficient one. Why are you questioning? Why would you think that I'm thinking? No. Father, give me patience. They don't get it. Still, they don't get it. Oh, I love him, though, so much. Peter, yes, I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, but Jesus, we are going to keep you from dying. What? I came for this. Light bulb moment, Peter. Satan, get behind me. Speaking right to Peter. Whoa, whoa, surely you're talking to someone else because you can't be talking to me. I'm one of your closest friends. But you know what? The devil just spoke through you, Peter. And Jesus may have wanted to just reach over and slap him. Hello, Peter. I don't know. But he didn't. Maybe he was tempted. I'm sure he suffered in that temptation. <laughs> but he didn't. You see, the, the truth is Jesus was tempted to be angry, unrighteously angry on many occasions. Goals thwarted, but he didn't. You see... We don't need to get angry because Jesus is the answer, and he knows your future. He knows your present. He knows what goals are being thwarted in your life. He knows how frustrating people can be, but he can still navigate you through all of that. I mean, come on, where is God in your life? He is right there. Can you really trust him? Or sometimes we get angry because people attack us, we get defensive in, in our response to hurt. Well, hello, Jesus was regularly attacked, but he did not retaliate. Why? Because he, the reason why we do this is when we're attacked, we feel people are robbing us of our value. And I'm, gonna, I'm kind of putting in maybe some psychological terms here, but the, the truth is, God has given us this amazing value being made in his image. And when that's attacked, we want to defend ourselves. It's a natural response. But the reason why we want to defend it is because we are failing to discover where our value truly comes from. 
it doesn't come from them because they obviously don't really appreciate me. Jesus went through this constantly as people tried to devalue him. But where did his value come from? It came right at the very beginning of his ministry, perhaps before. But we know that at his baptism, the father said, this is my son whom I love. Jesus' complete value was wrapped up in the fact that he was the son of God in the very nature of who he was extrinsically but intrinsically in his relationship with the Father, that the Father loved him. And nothing can shake that. So my question to you is when you feel attacked, when you feel devalued, and you want to get in someone's face, where are you going to find your value? Are you going to go back to Jesus and realize that he loves you so much? And he has placed his value on you that is insuperable, that is beyond anything that anyone can ever place on you, even a spouse, as much as they love you. We, we could go on with example after example. Jesus stepped into my suffering. He stepped into my pain. He stepped into what you are going through this week. He's been there. And this has made him a merciful, compassionate, loving high priest as one who has come to help us in relation to relate with the Father through Jesus and be able to bring us with him every step of the way, every problem that you encounter in this life. Jesus and only Jesus is the true abiding forever answer. And, and, and I'm truly not simplifying. This is no band-aid that I am putting on your problem. And I'm not trying to be superficial with an, an answer here. But when we discover that Jesus is everything, when we know this truth, but now how does it apply in this loss in my life? As we walk through that love, here's what he does. As we walk through that love, he begins to reveal who he is as this amazing high priest. And he gives us insight into the very nature of who he is. And we have to, church, we have to walk through this truth this way. This is how we experience God. Through the hardest times in your life, those are the very opportunities in which Jesus shows himself to be that merciful high priest. Now, I'm only going to touch on this. He is faithful very simply in this. He never changes. He doesn't love you today and hate you tomorrow. Your friends may do that to you, but he will never. Can you stand with me? I, I understand that with this scripture passage, we truly are scratching the surface in understanding that Jesus is my total satisfaction in life. Every problem that I encounter, he is the right answer. And this relationship with Jesus is what will bring me through everything. What the world has to offer is band-aids. They're not always wrong. They're just insufficient because they don't point us to Jesus. 
merciful, faithful people. Father, as we have discovered some truths this morning, and maybe we're wrestling with walking them out, I am simply asking, Spirit of God, just take these truths and bring them home to every heart, every heart. Make the knowledge of your word to bear on their life. Let them experience you, God, in their deepest hurt, in their greatest struggle, their biggest doubts. Would you show them just how amazing and loving and kind and faithful and merciful you are? Jesus, thank you for entering my heart. Thank you that you stepped out of heaven to take on human flesh because you love me that much. Help us, God, as we wrestle with hurts. Help us, God, as we discover this truth that you are the answer. And I just ask you, Father, help us walk through our lives as we bear this pain and walk through it. Would you take us by the hand? Would you lead us step by step? Would you heal the brokenness in us, God? The weeping, the heartache, the feeling of hopelessness at times. feeling that our life, my life, has been destroyed forever. Is there no hope? Today, God, I want to say thank you that you are enough. You are the healer. And I am praying, God, would you heal hearts this morning? Would you reach down into our brokenness and touch us? Great high priest, shame on you. Be merciful. Help me walk through this. We need you. Could we just turn the lights out right now? Except the ones on the stage. And I'm just going to encourage you in this one right here. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you, and He is wanting, and you know this, and He is wanting to bring healing to your life, I'm going conc- to encourage you to come up here and allow us to pray for you. And I know it's true that God can heal you right where you're standing. And He can do that because He's God. But He also created other people than yourself who love Jesus as much, or maybe even, maybe even more than you. And they can come along your side. And they can help point you to Jesus. And they can minister as well. Would you be able to allow someone to pray for you this morning? To help you walk through this. And if that's the case, I'm just going to close in prayer right now. 
because you really have to believe we're going to pray for you. Otherwise, you can fellowship quietly in this room as people are being ministered to and going to the welcome center. But here, but let Jesus be the center of your prayer. Father, I just ask you, God, as the healer of every heart, that you would step into our life, Lord, and that you would show us how amazing you are, how truly deep your love for us is, and to assure us that you're with us every step and that you do have an amazing plan you love us that much. Minister here, Lord, right now. In Jesus' name.